Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. How did a Japanese surgery game, collection of gems, and the esports industry transform the coding experience for kids? Today, we'll dive into the origin story of Code Combat with our CEO and co-founder, Nick Winter. He will share the journey of creating Code Combat along with the lessons he's learned along the way. Previously, Nick was CTO and co-founder of Scritter, the number one app for foreigners learning to write Chinese characters. He now sits on Scritter's board. He is also now the CEO and co-founder of Code Combat, a game for teaching kids to code that's played by more than 20 million learners. Nick brings together his passions for technology, optimization, and language learning to teach the next generation how to be native speakers of code. Nick is also the author of The Motivation Hacker, a book about achieving extreme productivity. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Yeah, no problem, Charlotte. Great to be here. <laughs> so I'd like to start off our interviews with a simple question. Could you please describe a memorable education experience that you've had as a student? I got to say it's probably the most relevant one would be when I was learning coding. So in computer science class, CS 110 in college, I had had no idea what I'd wanted to do. And I took coding on a whim alongside poetry and chemistry and all those other things that you might take. And I got into the class and I was like, this is so boring. It was so boring. Like the whole first semester you're doing Java and you're doing math. But when you're writing your Java code to do your math, it was super basic. And, you know, at this point, you'd have 13 years worth of formal math schooling. And you're like, great, addition in the computer. Oh, wow. Yeah. But we got to the end of the semester and there was a project. And then the project, it was a rabbits and foxes simulator. And, you know, they gave you almost all the code for that one. But I realized that you could maybe kind of write more code than other than like code right here places in the prompt. And so I experimented and I ended up adding zombies to it. And nice. <laughs> at that moment, I said, wait a minute, coding is just creativity. You can do whatever you want. Nobody told me this. And so it blew my mind. And then I realized computer science and coding were not what I thought they were. And they were more artistic. They were more creative. And they had been dressed up in the trappings of advanced, super nerdy math, kind of abstract instruction, which made it. I mean, I'm a geek and I like that kind of stuff, but it, it was quite the surprise. I feel you. I also took my first CS class and they introduced Carol the robot, which is basic C. And in the beginning, it was just so boring. And I was just on the fence until they showed you how to create artwork with Carol the robot. And you could see people recreate the Mona Lisa and things like that. And that's when I realized, yeah, you can use code to express thoughts and, and express your creativity too. So I'm glad you hung in there until they had an assignment that really showed you what coding could do. I mean, if that had come in second semester, I don't know, but uh, at the end of first semester, good timing. At that point though, most of the other students in the class were like really struggling because it was so difficult. For me, it just came naturally, but computer science as taught in university classrooms before the current wave of classes for non-majors that kind of make it as easy as possible to get people interested. I mean, that's some tough stuff, struggling with the Java syntax. They're not doing Python. It's uh, kind of every student for themselves out there. I personally hit that wall too. And I was almost a CS major slash minor. And that wall prevented me from continuing. So it's interesting that you also saw the same struggles there. So 
from there, you got interested in CS and then you started Scritter, which was your first company while you were in college. How did you come up with the idea for Scritter and what was your journey in founding the company? One of the classes that I took in college was Chinese. So I started learning Chinese characters and I was like, wow, this is great. This is great. And I got to the end of the first year. And I was like, this is hard. This is hard. And I was learning all these characters and then I was forgetting all the characters. And I kind of looked around, I did a kind of research project and all the other students were also forgetting all the characters, but the fiction was between the students and the professors that you remember the old characters. And so then the professors no longer quizzed you on the ones you were supposed to learn last semester or last year. And meanwhile, everybody's reading was slowing down. Everybody's language comprehension was slowing down because learning characters is so hard. Meanwhile, I've been reading all these Paul Graham essays and Paul Graham was like, you shouldn't uh, get jobs. Young people should just start startups. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I don't want to get a job. And I said to my college roommate, I was like, dude, Paul Graham says we shouldn't get jobs. Let's do a startup. And he's like, a start, what is that? Like, I, no, I have to study my econometrics homework because I've got to get my Wall Street job when I graduate and go work on Wall Street and get a job. And I'm like, no, that's opposite of what we need to do. And he's like, I bugged him enough. He's like, fine, if you can come up with a good idea, maybe I'll start a startup with you. But go away. I got to do my econ homework. So challenge accepted. Basically, challenge accepted. But I was like, okay, I don't know anything about startup ideas. So I was hanging out and I did get an opportunity to go to China one winter term. And that was volunteering in an NGO doing AIDS work in Chongqing. And it was like complete culture shock experience. Like all of these college students taking me around, trying to help people. And I come back to Beijing for a few days at the end after I was there for three weeks and reverse culture shock. Cause then I was hanging out with some expats. So my friend from childhood was studying language at one of those universities in Beijing. And then the only other computer science major from my year, from my college, happened to be in that same dorm room just by coincidence. Beijing's like, what, 25 million people? So what are the chances? Strange. Yeah, what are yeah. the chances? I'm like sick from traveling and we're waking up at two in the morning to go to the airport and we wake up and this guy who's like my clone, he's not slept. He's just stayed awake the whole night and he's chugging water to stay awake. And I, I wake up and I look over and I'm like, oh, what are you doing? Because I see him playing on his Nintendo DS. It looks like he's got his stylus out and he's playing some video game and he's writing Chinese characters. I'm like, oh, that's a great way to study. I want to play like, what is that? He's like, dude, what are you talking about? No, I'm like a Japanese combat surgeon. I'm in trauma surgery right now. That's what I'm playing. Oh, oh man, I thought you were, thought you were writing Chinese characters to play the game. He's like, let's go to McDonald's. And so I came back from that and I was like, wait a minute, you could make a, you could like write the characters just on the screen to learn the characters. Maybe we should do that. And I, I told my roommate, he's like, oh, okay, well, that, that's not stupid. And so we started the startup. Then the financial crisis happened right after we graduated. So he would have been out on the streets anyway, right? Like that Wall Street job would have lasted two months. So you did and him a favor, basically. <laughs> pretty much saved his life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we didn't know what we were doing. And so we kind of, every time there was, oh, how do you grow this business? Instead of saying, going out for a big market or trying to make more money, we said, well, let's make it teach better because maybe if people learn better, they'll pay us more. And so we spent five years iterating over and over and over again on this thing called Squitter which was entirely about how to have ed tech teach hard things, which is the language of Chinese. And we 
got it to the point where just the learning rate was so rapid and the retention rate was so good that all the hardcore learners were using it if they wanted to learn to write at all. And it was making all this money. We said, oh, okay, well, I guess we can retire now. We, we did it. And I, I tried to retire and made it about nine days. And I was hopelessly depressed. I was, I got to the guys. And I was like, guys, we got to do another one. And they're like, what? well, yeah, okay, okay. Like what? And I'm like, well, something we care about, something important, something a lot of people need to learn, maybe. And I mean, before that, we're like, let's do invisibility cloaks. But then they talked with some sense to me. And it was, okay, let's, we know ed tech. Let's do ed tech. And so from there, we said, well, you know what? We had to take computer science in college. Yeah, man, that sucked. It was well, boring. Yeah. Well, two of us thought like, well, that was kind of boring. And we had to do Java. That's terrible. Let's do like, and get, get to get the Python in there. And, and the other one of us had uh, bounced off, right? He'd tried everything out there from Codecademy to the textbooks, to the video lessons to learn Python the hard way. And he's, he wanted to be an engineer. He wanted it so bad. And he was trying to work on that, but he never really got over it. And so he tried it and he tried it and he tried it and he couldn't get it. And we said, well, what if you could make it easier to learn and more fun so you can stick with it? And we also said, well, you know, this should really be learned earlier. Like, why did we not discover this until we got to college? Well, what were we doing before college? Oh, yeah, we were playing video games the whole time. And so we said, all right, what if we could make a video game to teach coding? Like, we would have played that as kids then we would have found out coding is awesome as kids. And maybe you like wouldn't have had to wait so long. And so then it was all that kind of the journey from there saying, can we make a video game that teaches coding? And can we make it not like learning math? Can we make it like learning languages, right? Because languages, if you think about learning Python or learning C++, you are learning a language and that's the hard part of computer science is learning the syntax and the methods. But the syntax and the methods is just the grammar and the vocabulary. But instead of having dozens of grammar patterns and tens of thousands of words that you have to learn, it's like a couple dozen syntax patterns, maybe a few hundred useful APIs and methods. And so it's, it's actually should be much easier than learning the language, but we're just teaching it so badly that it becomes more like math. And so it doesn't need to be like that. And we said, all right, well, if we take our language learning methodology from Scritter and we do that up in the game-based learning format, where instead of let's do this so that we can do math, it's like, let's do this so we can get the gems, then maybe it'll be more fun. And so that was where we started CoComet. I used to teach at a Mandarin immersion school and they use Scritter K through five. And it was the magic solution for kids who were really struggling with remembering those brushstrokes. I took Chinese as a kid and that was my biggest struggle too. So I love how you were able to really iterate on that and really improve that. You didn't that like learning. writing the character a hundred times in a row. Oh my goodness. Squares. Sometimes I made my mom do it. <laughs> we had, you know, we had Chinese homework and my mom would teach me cheat codes just like you're saying with the game. So I had cheat codes for doing my Chinese homework where I just do the same brushstroke down the line for each, like you have to write it <laughs> 10 times and I just do the same one for her. She's like, yeah, Shala, it's so much faster this way. That's problem um, solving. <laughs> but I, have to, I was really impressed. So I'm really curious. You said, hey, I took what I, we learned from Scritter and applied it to how you develop the code combat experience for coding. Do you mind sharing an example of how you were able to take something from 
Scritter and integrate it into coding experiences? Okay. Yeah. You're going to have to stop me because I'm going to go on and on. So there's the intensive learning versus the extensive learning. This is a concept from kind of your reading speed. If you're saying, well, am I reading Harry Potter? If Harry Potter in like foreign language is something that I can just chug through, it's not that hard. Or am I reading my textbook? Am I reading something that I have to slow down and stop a lot? So if you, you measure it in terms of the number of new words or unfamiliar things you have to stop and look up per page and that reading speed. And there's this concept that extensive learning, extensive reading is what you should be doing most of the time because it's more fun. So you will actually do a lot more reading time and learning time. Like it's not hard to spend an hour a day reading Harry Potter in Spanish or something. It's very hard to get yourself to do an hour a day reading your textbook. So you say, well, okay, 20 minutes per day of the textbook. It's, it's harder to do 20 minutes of the textbook than it is an hour of Harry Potter. You do have a lot more new words per page in the textbook. And so your vocabulary per minute of time will go up faster. However, your fluency with that vocabulary will not because you didn't have enough practice with it. And so you have a lot of people that study foreign languages this way. And technically they know everything on the page because they built their vocab, but their reading speed is slow and their production is not there. And so when you're doing that with Scritter, you're saying, well, I wanna spend almost all the time practicing quickly. So I don't wanna stop and think about, do I know this thing and study it and spend like a minute to like go review that character. I want three seconds, no, two seconds, no, a second and a half and just fly. So if you can get yourself to be flying through it, it's more fun. You'll spend more time and you'll build that fluency faster. So we took that to coding, CoCombat. We wanted to make sure that a lot of the coding that you're doing is using stuff that you already know so that you can type quickly. You can use that code. You can build that fluency with it as opposed to like three new things per level that are difficult. And like each thing is a big puzzle and it's hard. So getting the difficulty right meant making sure that you did build in that review and usage of stuff that you already knew. Normally, if you're doing that outside of the game-based learning format, it's boring because you're like, oh, why do I need to write another for loop? I just wrote two for loops. Like, let's go into something else. But when your for loop is, oh yeah, I definitely want to command my troops for this one. Or I definitely need to check out where the easiest enemy to target is. Like, yeah, we can get you to write a hundred for loops in a row. And you're not thinking like, geez, it's the hundredth for loop. You're thinking like, aha, I've applied this in different scenarios for the last hundred levels, I should use a for loop for deciding um, which spell to cast. So building that fluency with the extensive rather than the intensive would be the first concept. That's fascinating. And you mentioned those video game elements. So it seems to be just fully infused into the entire code combat experience. I mean, you're collecting gems, you're leveling up equipment, you're traveling to different worlds. What inspired those specific game design choices? Coming into making Squitter, I had no idea about coding or business. We just kind of figured it out, the coding faster than the business and the ed tech a little maybe in between the both of those. When we came into Code Combat, we knew more about all those things, but we didn't know anything about game design. And so we said, well, what do we like? No, not what we like. What do a lot of people like? What? And so we said, like, what do we like? And we would have liked as kids and what do our wives like and this kind of thing. And so then we came up with these more universal elements. We thought we tested them and tested them until we found the ones that kind of resonated with people. And that was kind of that top down experience where you're going in up, down, left, right. We didn't want to just move around all the time. We wanted you to do stuff. So we quickly got to collecting gems like, okay, well, 
move, but why? I'll move here, right? Then you can spend the gems on equipment, on inventory, armor, special weapons, pets, etc. And then we had combat because we just love combat. And so you're fighting against the ogres, you're fighting against the skeletons. My favorite monster in any video game is a skeleton. Everyone makes fun of me. So I'm like, oh, how about a skeleton there? And like, geez, we just did ske- Nick, you and the skeletons again. Like, can we do spider or something? But skeletons objectively are the best video game enemy. I feel the same thing about chinchillas. I really promoted hard for chinchillas in one of the video game companies we worked at. And same reaction that I got in a chinchilla, like come hell or high water. <laughs> but that's Oh, you got a- pushed back. I got pushed back. It's now yeah, that looks they like try, a chinchilla. Yeah, they tried to draw the chinchilla and it didn't look like a chinchilla. I cried a little bit. It's you needed right. to come in there and just do the art yourself. Yeah, I, I'm over it. It's okay. But I'm chinchilla glad you got your- Chinchilla pet and co-comment. Let's add one. I, I agree. I agree. But I love how you got your skeleton in at least. <laughs> once there are a time. lot of skeletons. But yeah, so we had the fight in the combat. We also added a bunch of magic because we like magic. I mean, at the time, everybody's doing robots. It's a natural fit. You can code robots, but we just thought it was be more fun to do something else. So we had the fantasy world with the magic. We originally had wizards, like you're a wizard and you fly around the screen. And when you code something up, you're using magic to mind control it. And then it was too complicated. So now you just code the hero. And for some reason, the hero follows your instructions. But, you know, we originally thought it'd be a tower defense game. And so we put all these towers in there and then it was just much more natural to control your hero and move around than it was to like control how your towers shoot at things. So we keep building tower defense elements because we're big tower defense junkies. You see our AI league arenas, they're all got those towers in there. I'm glad you found a home for the tower defense mechanic as well. Uh, So you were talking about iterating already that you were trying out these different types of gaming styles to see what matches well. And you, you finally found one that worked, but what were some other struggles you faced when you were first building out the code combat experience? Well, there's the, even was it technically possible to run the player's code in a way where you could get kids to sit down and code this thing without backup, right? Without the professor, the teacher there, without the parent kind of looking over their shoulder and knowing coding. And so it was like a hundred, 200 little things you have to do in order to get the kids to succeed in that because they don't necessarily type very fast. They don't necessarily even know how to use a text editor. They don't necessarily even care about coding at first. They just want to play the fun video games. So the error messages were a big thing. Every error message out there is it comes from a compiler or an interpreter. And all of the compilers and interpreters are designed by professional software engineers or professional software engineers. And so when we are now professional software engineers and we say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Syntax error, unexpected token. Yeah, I got it. I just need to get rid of that token. That wasn't supposed to be there. And then you, you sit down and you play test with the kids. It doesn't make sense, right? It's not English. This is the main thing. If you want to take a language learning methodology to teaching coding, you actually have a native speaker there. The native speaker is the computer. It speaks Python. Great. It just doesn't speak English. Like it speaks weird, like program error message. So it'll say, you know, unterminated string constant. And the, the, the kids like, I don't know any of those words. What is going on? And so we had to rewrite the whole code engine, made the only beginner focused code engine for Python JavaScript. But now it says, don't put a space or should be a capital R. Even stuff that's not technically a syntax error, we can throw an error because we know oh, you probably shouldn't have two while loops in there. That could be a program, but we know that it isn't for the level that you're trying to do. So we make it super, super simple. The kid just types in something, it's wrong because they don't know Python, they don't know JavaScript. And then it tells them in a way that they can understand. We've iterated it based on 20 million kids going through that. 
And now they say, oh yeah, I got it. And so then the iteration cycle is five seconds instead of like, wait till the teacher can explain it the next day. And that's what we're talking about, the extensive practice, right? The growth mindset, the freedom to fail and experiment. You can do all of that if the computer can explain to you quickly, kind of as in conversation, what to do instead of whatever the heck it was you just did. That must have been such a big task because you're literally building an interpreter between the player and the computer of what these error messages mean. Like, how were you able to catch them all? to make sure they were properly interpreted. There's six different layers at which these things can be thrown, right? And so a lot of times if you're making a Linux product, you have control over one or two of those. So that was actually the open source angle really helped with that because I originally wrote the first version of our transpiler and it was pretty good. It was super hacky because I'm not a compilers expert. And you know we weren't getting quite all of those layers and there were just random bugs and the performance was okay, but it was just super hacky. And then we had an open source competition. We said, hey, we want more programming languages because that time we only had JavaScript. And for the price of some prizes, like a couple iPads and a MacBook Air, we got super pro engineers to come and say, oh, I'll add Python, I'll add C++, I'll add Clojure. And then we hired two of those engineers. And then one of them built the ultimate beginner-friendly code engine, which is also open source. So if you have learned to code products that you want to make, you should use it called esper.js. And that was how we really got it done the right way. And so when you put a compiler engineer to work, it always takes nine months. There's a proverb about this. It's kind of like delivering a baby and you cannot add more people to it. It does not get faster. And so we were able to get him to go into a cave for nine months and come out with the perfect code engine interpreter. And that's how we did it. That's such a great case study of why open source can be a great solution to a big problem, right? Oh yeah, we have over 600 contributors and we would never have gotten into China. We would never have gotten into most of the countries without the localization help from all the open source contributors that hit that. We would only have JavaScript. We would not have achievements. My dad had run one of the earliest, largest open source home automation projects written in Perl called Mr. House way back in the nineties. And you'd think I would have gotten into coding sooner because my dad's doing all that stuff. And I was like, that's a dad thing. And I never tried it. And so that, that was where I missed out, but I was lucky to have the opportunity in college to get back in on it. And I just wanted to make sure that more kids had the opportunity to try it in a way that would like resonate with them. And huh, I tried coding and I didn't never think of myself as a coding person or I didn't even know what it was, but now I see that it, this gives me creativity. This gives me voice. I can have impact. And that's what's been so rewarding about seeing that all the people that are doing with CoComat and Ozaria, both people that are like kids like me that just in the video games and kids that weren't like me, but that nevertheless were not represented in computer science education. Right. It just looks like also that open source strategy allowed you to scale that accessibility so much faster than if you just did it yourself. So I, I call that a really good early win, just deciding on that strategy. But what other parts of the experience seem to really connect with students? Like what were additional early wins that you discovered along the way? Well, I gotta say we weren't expecting to have multiplayer and I had built some level that was just too hard as kind of a fun challenge. And all these professional software engineers started to play it. And I was like, huh, that's weird. Then we made, uh, we hacked up a multiplayer experiment where you could say, code up your team and then some other person would code up their team and then they would battle. And all the professional software engineers also did that. It just started these tournaments, right? 
And we said, okay, but we actually need to teach kids how to code, right? So let's go back to the single player. Meanwhile, this really hardcore multiplayer architecture is all set up. And our China team started using that to run all these tournaments in China. And it was a big hit, like academic esports. And we're saying, huh, well, maybe we should do more with this. Because the kids really loved it. We just was like, okay, well, that's like an advanced game feature. So we experimented bringing it easier and easier earlier and earlier, where you would just kind of write the most simple code and then iterate from there. And, you know, you submit your game and it like plays 200 matches within the next 30 seconds and you can see your score and you can iterate that. And it's like really great engineering process, but also super fun because you're like crushing your enemies. And then, you know, someone cheeses you with some totally ridiculous strategy. Like, no, how could they do that? And you have to adapt your code, right? And so the motivation we see in some of those kids for competition that way, or just like implementing their vision with their strategy, you know, it's, it's super fun. So we do the AI league things and, you know, run those tournaments several times a year and see what the kids come up with. And, you know, that's not something that other learn to code platforms are doing because they're like, we're a learn to code platform, not like a code to defeat your enemies platform, but it works because you got to give people outlets for that. In addition to the project-based learning where they're coding up their games and their websites, now they're coding up their AI strategies. I mean, that was something that we kind of lucked into as well. And you make a great point. A lot of other coding platforms, they really choose one coding experience and they really lean into it. They expand it. They further iterate on it. But with Code Combat, it seems like we've been adding other coding experiences like Ozaria and the AI League. So what drove you to build out multiple coding platforms for kids? Well, we built Code Combat for players to play at home. And that was great. And you could sit down any eight-year-old they just start typing Python, it works. All the teachers started to use it and we're like, huh, this is for kids at home. But we didn't know what teachers wanted. So we just built what they asked for. And so we built all the teacher features, the dashboard, the curriculum, the rubrics, the activities, the lesson plans, the slides, all of that. And eventually just said, you know what? We could do new content too, so new levels. And you know what? While we're doing the new levels, we could make some new pedagogical modes that would work really well if the teacher is giving instruction in the classroom. And you know what? We kind of have this branding issue sometimes where some of the schools don't want any violence in their game as opposed to like cartoon violence like we have in Code Combat. So we said, well, let's do some new level series and then we'll work in additional pedagogical modes that kind of talk more about what computer science is and concept checks and that kind of thing. And we'll do a new brand for it. We'll do something that is more appealing universally to girls and underrepresented students rather than co-combat, which everybody loves, but especially boys love because they get to fight things, right? And so we built Ozari as the primary classroom product. So if you're in the school, you're teaching a class, then that's the thing for you. It's kind of the V2 of all the teacher stuff. And that's been really good because now we can make co-combat better at the things that co-combat does well. And Ozari is better at the classroom things that it is designed to do. And then the AI league actually spun out in the middle of the pandemic. How did you decide on building that? I have a tendency to build stuff that's super cool. And so I'd kind of kept the multiplayer thing alive, but I'd always said, oh, I shouldn't get distracted with this thing. And the China team saying, dude, no, you should. And then we started saying, well, you know, the schools, you're not in person. We got the distance learning. We did a quick experiment with school focus, school to school multiplayer. You have like teams per school, per classroom, per school district. And you can run these custom tournaments and, you know, people love that. So we just said, Hey, you know, we've always wanted to do this. Our customers are actually asking for it. So let's really build this out. And so we launched it at the beginning of 2021. So it's in just over a year, 
already had more than 2 million players on the leaderboards. So it's just a big hit there. And like, you know, brings me back and says, oh yeah, I was right about building the multiplayer thing for sure. And I'm pretty sure that means that more skeletons should go in the game too. So you got to hold me back, Charlotte, from just thinking that all my design decisions are good because we lucked into a lot of that stuff. Well, I will support your skeleton decisions if you support my chinchilla decisions. And, Done. you know, well, you started it, the, the whole PVP a while ago, but it seems like esports in general has been slowly becoming more popular in schools. Is that also played a factor in when and how we launched the AI League? I would say it's been quickly getting more and more popular in schools. The limiting factor, though, being it's actually kind of hard to set up an esports team. You need the lab, you need the equipment, you need the coach, and you need tryouts because a lot of these matches, you know, four versus four, five versus five, depending on the game. You can't take all the kids that want to play. In any given high school, hundreds of kids like to play Smash Brothers, but maybe you only have five on your Smash Brothers team or something like that. It's, it's limited. And so when we started doing this as academic esports, uh, it took off very quickly because it filled a complementary hole that a lot of esports programs had. And it also allowed student schools that didn't have an esports program but were kind of interested in it to get started easily because... You didn't need specialized computers. You didn't need to limit your team size because it's kind of built off the curriculum, which is designed to mostly be self-serve, self-paced, not really requiring any coding expertise. You didn't need the expert teacher or the coach. And so you say, all right, instead of just teaching kids how to outshoot or outrace or outfight their opponents, this is also doing it via coding. We can all get behind that. And that makes any existing esports program that does have those other games better because, hey, it's not just this domination of your enemies. It's also learning. And so you put those things together, you can expand your team size, you can get going even without the equipment. And the curriculum integration is a big piece too. So there's a big wave of esports coming through and usually it's super expensive because of all these other factors and only certain kids can play. And it's a good compliment. And we have a certain person who keeps hopping to the top of the leaderboard. Can you describe our constant winner? Our, our true hero, Gabriel Lay, username, Shining Lice. We launched the first tournament and no one could beat this kid. And at that time, we have the, the four age brackets. There's a zero to 11 age bracket for your elementary school, the 11 to 14 for your middle school, and the 14 to 18 for high school, plus the open bracket where all your professional software engineers go. And we thought that, okay, some professional software engineers definitely going to win this, but then we'll have some competition for the high schoolers and then the middle schoolers. And so we got to definitely make these brackets and the brackets were a good idea, but the overall winner was our middle schooler at that time. He who's just turned 14 or something like that. And like crushed everybody completely undefeated out of, you know, 6,000 players. And we're like, wow. That was some genius coding right there. And so we did like the, the recap video and saw his code. I was like, wow, that, that's amazing. We sent him a bunch of prizes, right? And then we get to season two and now it's getting more established and more people are playing we're like, okay. And we did have more and more pros coming. We're like, okay, well, let's see who can give Shining Lights a challenge, right? And he wins again, completely undefeated. And everybody knows he's the target to beat. So everyone's optimizing their code against his specifically. And we say, okay, come on guys, let's challenge Shining Lights. And he goes into the three-peat. So he ran all three tournaments last year. Now he's in the 14 to 18-year-old bracket. Still no one's been able to beat him. Got to get some of that prize distribution sent over somewhere else. I mean, this is like a job now in terms of like how much scholarship money he's raking in and how many peripherals he's got from the esports sponsors. And of course, he picks the name Shining Lice. That just must be 
fun to always see that at the top of the leaderboard. <laughs> I, there, there's a certain amount of troll mentality that must go into any competitive spirit. And I think we might see a little bit of that there. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And I also love how our own game designers, again, feel the challenge accepted. Like, how can we basically foil Shining Lights or truly challenge him? Yeah, but what he tends to do is he comes in and saves his best strategies to the last moment. So as he's updating his strategies, then the top player's updating theirs and it goes down to midnight and then, you know, locks it in. Anyway, if anybody wants to challenge him, make sure you're there so you can hit him with your best shot and pull out your secret Easter eggs, right? That's right. And I just love how he's not only focusing on coding strategy, but now it's also arena strategy, basically to really get to the top of the leaderboard. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of these players are already writing like 1,000, 1,500 lines of game AI code, pretty optimized stuff. And so it's if you aren't really good at coding, you're not able to implement the advanced strategies, but you also have to have the game strategies too. And so that's where I think some of these kids that are video game natives have that strategic advantage over the software engineers. Software engineers have a really clean, well-organized code, but they're not thinking like, oh, okay, so then my guy can actually push the other guys out of the way instead of attacking and put them to this disadvantageous spot on the board when my other guys will encircle him and like just crazy moves that we see coming out at the high levels of meta. Let's just summarize here. We've got the code combat experience, dungeon crawls, leveling up your equipment. We have a Zarya that is more story-based and teacher-friendly you're defeating a darkness. We also have the AI league where we've got shining lights leading the way on, on game and arena strategy. Where do you hope to take co-combat in the years to come? Are you thinking of developing more experiences, doing deeper dives into the ones that we already have? Well, we're roadmapping now, so I'm not exactly sure what the next strategic projects are, but I always want to improve what we have more and more because there's how well it works, which is well, and there's how well it should work, which is perfectly right. If you have a bug, if you have an error message, if you have some level that's just not engaging enough and some kid tries that and doesn't get over the threshold and they're like, meh, or too hard, they get stuck and then turns them off from coding, they should know how awesome it can be. They should know how easy it can be to learn. They should make the decision that they don't want to develop that skill after having had it presented in the best possible way, right? So there's all these things that I want to do with our current products and with complementary products that take it until the entertainment factor of the game is as high as any other entertainment factor. So competing against not just other educational experiences, but competing against Fortnite, competing against Netflix and YouTube. Can we make it so that there is nothing that you would necessarily rather do and use all the game design and game development kind of tactics and tricks, but for good, right? Addicting someone to something that is going to lead them to that like number one job skill, as opposed to something that's going to waste their time. So on the engagement side, just always looking for ways to make it more fun, always thinking about, hey, what's the next thing we can do there? And on the education side, the efficacy side, can we teach faster? Can we teach better? Can we reduce how much people get stuck? Can we go younger? Can we go further? And so more curriculum, more polish, more features. The other aspect that I want to do is get it in the hands of more students. We have tens of thousands of schools in the U.S. that are using it. Most of our traffic is international, but it's kind of hit or miss, right? Some places there's no go-to-market effort. We're not helping the teachers, we're not helping the students. It's incompletely localized. Really, you want to have impact. You want to have the kids that would not have had the opportunity or if they had it, it would have been like a much worse opportunity presented in the wrong light. Like 
having to do math in Java as opposed to getting to play a game in Python. If we can get that into the hands of those kids that would have the talent for it, would have the hunger for it, but just would never have been able to try it because they just happened to be living in the Cote d'Ivoire or something like that, you know, we got to get out there, get to the whole world, get it localized, get it fast, get it accessible, get it making sense for those cultures. A worthy mission, if I do say so myself. So yeah, sign me up. I think you're pretty signed up. Yeah, I'm pretty signed up. (laughs) Taking an even bigger look at the world of ed tech, how do you see it transforming in the future to meet the needs of our future generations? It's a great question. I think often ed tech was very underpowered business-wise compared to general tech because the business models weren't there. And so if you wanted to make an ed tech experience, then it was really hard to get funding. It's really hard to get enough of talented team on it. And if you built something, you couldn't get very much revenues because distribution wasn't in place. All that is changing. So schools are more ready to buy. They understand how to buy technology now. The processes are in place. There's still a long way to go, but you see a lot of state policy, country-level policy pushing for good technological solutions. You have teachers and students ready to adopt. You've got the tech platforms and internet access in the schools. More and more, you're having some expertise in ed tech. So the things that you make when you have that money and you have those customers are actually good. And there are some domains that are harder than others. For example, it's going to be really hard to do a decent job at teaching your actual Spanish class without the Spanish teacher, right? Like, you need the native speaker, but your math drills, for example, are doing really great because math drills are very easy to code up and that adaptive learning piece, it's naturally fit for that extensive learning and that active production that you need. And so what we want to do is take ed tech and say, let's realize its promise. And it's been making promises for a long time and they've largely failed to deliver. And that's partially because the people that are making it are coming in from the education side, but not the tech side. They never get enough budget. They never get enough development time because the market wasn't there. As all that changes and you have people coming in from the tech side and joining hands with the people from the education side, you have people from the education side that aren't thinking like, how do I deliver my lessons better? But like actually first principles thinking, how should this be taught? And you're bringing in different mediums. It's increasingly globalized. We're learning from what people are doing in China. They're learning from us. We're learning kind of what works on mobile or what works outside of the school, text message-based education. Like all of these things coming together to say that promised land where the teacher is empowered. The students are going through the best curriculum the world has to offer. The technology is adapting in real time to each student. And everything is really engaging and effective. We're going towards that. You need huge budgets. You need AI. You need all of the like curriculum design teams making the best content. You need iteration. You need business models and buying channels. But we're getting better at all that stuff. And so then you have the curriculum is not just what the teacher put together during their break a few years ago and still uses. It's, it's like optimized, right? The method of delivery is not the teacher lecturing sage on the stage style. It is the teacher as the guide on the side, right? They're coaching you through, but your minute to minute practice is done with a software system that's helping you learn faster, having that conversation with you. Like all of those things coming together, additionally, with access towards the underrepresented students from underserved areas, right? It doesn't work if it only goes to the rich suburban school districts. 
they often pay the way for technology development, but you've got to also have an attitude that's going to bring that to the underserved schools and the underserved students and also like cultural fit for them too. All of that is happening. Everyone's paying attention to the right things. You just wish it would happen faster. I know, but we can't just do it alone, right? Like it's going to take a true community of people having concentrated efforts in, in this industry. For sure. So wrapping it up here, looking back all the way back at where you started with Code Combat after Scritter, what advice would you have given yourself? I mean, making businesses in edtech space is pretty tough. And also going to market in the classrooms has been very tough too. And so if I went back in time and I said, hey, you know, maybe you should just focus on kids learning at home, be a lot easier. But I didn't, maybe fortunately for some listeners. And so now we have built the whole classroom version. We have built the school and district go-to-market team. So it is in those hands. It is powering core computer science curriculum. And so through all that meant much hard work and sweat and tears, then now we have that. But I think I probably would have worn myself off of it. There are more and more kind of educational app stores getting started. Clever's got a good thing going on. Legends of Learning is building their thing. If we can get the platforms going where you just need product and pedagogy and content, and you don't need so much emphasis on go-to-market and sales, then I think we'll see many flowers bloom. And I hope we can get there soon. Well, I for one am very grateful that you didn't receive that advice from your future self, <laughs> because now we have these coding experiences that teachers can really take advantage of too. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Charlotte. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.